Hi, listeners. Joe here with a quick Patreon update and show introduction by myself because I went and got a Christmas tree instead of recording it with Ethan. So uh, on the Patreon this week, there will be a pillow talk. Who knows what it'll be about? We will on Friday. This episode is with Pamela Dayton, who is different from the Pamela who you may have heard on the podcast in the past, who we have talked about cancer and working at a variety of churches with. Pamela Dayton is a friend of ours from Upper New York. She has a great story. I'm excited for you to hear all of it. And as a heads up, we do talk about her experience in refugee camps in Beirut and Lebanon during the Syrian civil war. That happens from minute 10 to about minute 15. And so if that is difficult to listen to you for right now because of world events, feel free to skip it. But otherwise, this is a great episode. We have a great conversation and I hope you enjoy the show. One, two, five, nine. This week on the podcast, friends, we have Pamela Dayton with us. She has not been on the podcast before, but I'm trying to think about like how to introduce you because I feel like you are part of like the podcast story that I have told. Is a friend, a connection through Upper New York, through Ian. And so we are just delighted to have you on and hear your story and to talk about making mistakes and what comes next. So Pamela, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Even though I'm telling you about my dirty laundry. So yes, that's what we like. It's been a hot second since we've done. No, that's not true. We've talked about complaint processes for the last month. And if that's not the United Methodist Church's dirty laundry, I don't know what is. Um, But Pamela, will you give our listeners like a quick introduction to who you are, like an elevator pitch of this is who I am. This is my position in the world. So I am a mid-40s white lady who is cishet, and I have four children, ages 20, 18, 16, and 14. My undergrad degree is in music education, and I also have a Master of Arts in Social Justice and Theology, where I primarily studied Islamophobia and how that became nationalized. Um... After that program, I started studying my Master of Divinity program at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School in Rochester. Mm. Since then, I am a part-time executive director of a nonprofit based out of Buffalo, and I did some CPE residency at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and then I was employed in another position by the University of Rochester Medical School Center, and now I am not. So we will dig into all of that. Thank you for sharing. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think really of where to start because I I think that like astute listeners will hear the through line through through what you have described uh, as like your life path. But do you yourself know um, or maybe have identified for yourself what your call or however you want to phrase that like ultimate purpose in your life is like, do you know for yourself what you want to do? <laughs> no, <laughs> um, I want to do the right thing in the world um, for people who don't usually get the right thing done for them. Oh yeah. Yes. So one of the things I do in all my spare time, um, some Two friends and I founded Free Hugs Rock, which is the Free Hugs 
organization that's not affiliated with Free Mom Hugs. Um, we're here in Rochester and we show up to Pride and we've done other events earlier this spring. We made a love wall when there was a drag story hour that was scheduled to be protested by some unsavory types. And we stood as a barrier between the people who would want to be scary to kids and the kids. I am, I am always very moved by that work. You know, it, um, it always gets me in my feels, you know, just, Mm -hmm. just putting yourself in between, in, in between the person who is about to be harmed and the person who wants to do the harming. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, as fellow white ladies, this is something that we can do with our bodies all the time. You know, it is it is one of those privileges that comes along with our skin color and our position in the world sure is that. that we can stand in between white supremacy and what white supremacy wants to do and between homophobia, and what homophobia wants to do, you know, exactly. Um, but so often we don't, you know, so, so often we just participate in systems that oppress us and others. Yeah. And this isn't the first time that that I've used myself in that manner um we we got to be pretty famous around the world up here in rochester back in 2021 when the news came out that the rochester police department had murdered daniel prude Mm -hmm. and when that news came out we had weeks and weeks and weeks of protesting that often ended with expired tear gas being fired at us um, there were so many people who were injured with rubber bullets and pepper balls. Um, one of the one of the protesters lost an eye, and now they just in the last couple weeks there was a class action lawsuit or a federal lawsuit um, filed against the Monroe County Sheriff because lots of people with uteruses had very very bad reactions after being tear gassed and pepper sprayed. Yes. There is just something particular about being a person who knows, uh, who has had to learn how to deal with tear gas and how to be aware of what happens afterwards. You know, like, I don't think that that's something that many of us white women thought we would be experiencing in the course of our lives. Um, no. Yeah. I let's let's back up. Um talk to me about how how your faith fits into your kind of life story and your vocational story. So how were you raised and what churches have you attended and have you ever tried to go into vocational ministry as a part of like the work that you you feel you need to do in the world? So I grew up in Genesee County in New York, and we went to a church called the Full Gospel Christian Tabernacle, and it started out being affiliated with the Assemblies of God Church, but then it took a turn hard right and ended up in a cult situation. Um, The pastor and the assistant pastor were brothers-in-law. They had married sisters and the pastor decided to build a great big commune house where all the people could live and basically where he could just, you know, screw other people's wives. And this, he was, he was peach. And this went on for a while. And one day they all just picked up and moved to a place called Island Pond, Vermont. And 
that the whole thing was just a train wreck. And fortunately, my parents didn't participate in the moving to Island Pond, Vermont part. But the assistant pastor eventually ended up on America's Most Wanted because his he kidnapped his sons. And they found them, I think, in Europe someplace. And it, like just there's just so many so much devastation and so many families were destroyed by that. And I just think about those kids, they were my age, you know, they'd be in their forties now. And, and, and how do you, how do you live a life after that? Like that's just bonkers. So we took a vacation from church for a while, as you might guess. And then when I was in my early teens, we started attending the United Methodist church that was in my village. And we, I got confirmed there. I graduated high school there. I sang in the choir. I lit my bulletin on fire one time during the candlelight service (laughs) when I was 17 or 18, I think that was. So it was not great. Um, I got married in that church and then, um, then my, my spouse at the time got a job at a mega church near Buffalo and he was doing audio engineering and production things there. And this was around the time the Syrian civil war started, which I know that kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, so we were going to this church and I was participating in some of the ministries there and my kids were hating it and I made them go anyway, which I'm sorry, y'all. Um, so somehow, probably just doom scrolling on Instagram, I saw some pictures of some kids that had gotten hurt by war in Syria. And I don't know anything about Syria. And and, and this was 2011, 2012. I didn't know anything about Syria. I didn't know, like literally knew nothing. And I just, I saw these babies and these kids and these moms and these dads. And and it just hurt my heart. Like mm-hmm. I heard people saying like, oh, my heart was broken for this. And, and, you know, in the position when you're a middle-class cisgender heterosexual white woman, like there's not a ton of opportunities to get your heart broken, like really broken. Right. And, and this wrecked me. And Every day I, I would take some time and just go through the people that I followed who covered the Syrian civil war. And I would, I would see their faces and I would, I would pray for people and like, just prayed against war. Like, let them stop hurting each other. Like these people don't deserve this. It doesn't matter what side they're on. Like people don't deserve to have to deal with war. And this went on and on and on for months and months and months and months. And um, we were at Chuck E. Cheese for the birthday party of one of my spouse's colleagues. And I had gotten stuck in a really vapid conversation with a woman. And I pretended to see someone that I recognized. And I said, oh, I have to go talk to them, which I almost never try to get out of conversations, but that one I did. And I went over and I started talking to this 
the this guy who was the outreach pastor at the church. And we had recently had someone from Lebanon come over and talk about the work that, that this Lebanese NGO was doing in the Syrian refugee community. And I had missed the Lebanon part of it. And we started talking about the humanitarian crisis because that's what I like to talk about. And um, he said, you know, we're going, you should come with us. And in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I should go. Now, I was, you know, 30s-ish. I had four kids. The youngest one was four. The oldest one was 10. Like, it's not a particularly great time to be traveling near a war zone. But um, I told my spouse, I was like, I think I really need to go. And from, from what I had known about where the refugees were, I assumed we were going to Jordan or Turkey. And I was surprised to find out that we were going to Beirut, Lebanon. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, it's got a different vibe really. Yeah. Than Amman, Jordan, you know, it's, it's a little different. Um, they, they have a real reputation for violence and being scary and blowing things up. And, um, I had to do a lot of learning for myself to kind of be prepared for where I was going. Like, what is the culture? What can I wear? What, how do you act in public? How, like, do you talk to women? Do you talk to men? Do you talk to anyone? Do you just keep your head down and whatever? Because the worst possible thing you can be when traveling anywhere is an American. Um, mm-hmm. we, we're the actual worst. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and um, we have no shame as a people. We have no manners. We don't know any languages except English, and we get real mad when people don't speak it to us. So mm-hmm. I don't know when I had had that realization, but I started really working on myself to learn as much as I could about Lebanon, about Syria, about the war, about the NGO that we were going to go work for. Um, and so we, we fundraised for a while, and my job was to travel with a mobile clinic and I'm not medical, um, but I could bring my camera and I got to make portraits of refugees and I made pictures of what the, what the camps looked like, what life was like, where they hung their laundry, the kids, um, playing ball, the kids playing tag. And it, it was, I had never, seen poverty like that. Hmm. The the refugee camps in Lebanon are there's there's two kind of ridges of mountains. One is the mountains that you climb down to get from Syria into Lebanon and then the other mountain range is after you're down in the valley then you go up the mountains and you get to places like Beirut and um, Tripoli. So we're between these two mountain ranges, and the climate is a is a lot like Western New York, maybe a little warmer. Hmm. Um, they have the same kind of summer um, crops that we do: zucchini, tomatoes, peppers, corn, eggplant, 
um, fruit trees, pears, apples. They had nut trees. Um, the they grew like olives and cashews, and like the cashews in Lebanon are like the size of your thumb. They're huge. Wow. So the refugee camps are kind of they they sort of line the farm fields. Um, they they live next like between the road and the field. They put up tents, and sometimes the the camps would pay the farmer to let them stay there. And sometimes people would work for the farmers, but they just live there. And it snows in the winter, and it rains in the spring, and there's mudslides, and there's ice, and people don't have shoes, and they. Their tents are usually reclaimed two by fours and other lumber that are wrapped in billboard plastic. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, like, I know you can use it that way, but it it strikes you differently when you hear it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's not what it's for. It's not for houses. Um, and I, I'll never forget there. One of the camps that we were in. It, it was the worst. It, it was, it, they were so poor. And the tent that we were allowed to set up our clinic in was wrapped with a billboard about the soaring stock prices in Dubai. Hmm. And that, that just hits different when you're, you know, near Dubai and people are dying from having dirty water to drink. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a whole experience. Um, and it was, it just really changed how I looked at everything. Yeah, it sounds very formative. And I I don't know why I was I was surprised in a way. I was surprised that it changed me so much. And I don't know why. Like hindsight's 2020, 20, so looking back I'd be like, of course it changed. <laughs> of course it changed everything. Right. Um, so Reentry back into my my little house with my my babies and my spouse was hard, hard, hard. Um, I saw a lot of things. I I met some kids who were deaf because they had been playing ball with a metal ball that turned out to be a grenade, and it exploded. oh my god, it exploded between them. Um, and they're deaf, they were deaf. And, um, I met a mom and a son who were having tea in their living room and, uh, a rocket landed in their living room while they were there. And to, to say that that is so far removed from how, we experience everyday life in the United States is the understatement of the century. Yeah. Um, it, 
it makes you appreciate things like running water, right? Um, every time a camp popped up in in the Bekaa Valley, the United Nations Committee High Commission of Refugees would bring them a water filter. And there were hundreds of people in camps, and they never replaced the water filter. So they had clean water for a period of time. And then everyone started getting stomach aches and vomiting and diarrhea. And it turned out they all had the filth. So we were teaching people how to make um, Gatorade or Pedialyte out of salt and water and sugar. And that assumed that they had salt and sugar and clean water. Right. So... Anyway, I got home, and the same guy that told me I should go on the trip handed me a postcard that advertised um, Master of Arts in Social Justice and Theology. And he said, you should do this. And honestly, th- that was that was his too. Like, I don't usually do exactly what people tell me to do, but he mm-hmm. was right. Um, so I applied to graduate school. It was, you know, 2013. I graduated college in 1999. So it had been a while since I'd done things like read books that don't have pictures in them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I never studied theology. I actually didn't know what theology was, but I, I had an idea about what social justice was and that felt like the right thing. And Mm. I made such an ass of myself on the the first day of class. um, We, I was in the first cohort of all distance learners and this was, you know, before COVID, before Zooming. So it, it, it was very innovative. And we, I joined my cohort out in Oregon and the first class we had was about um, race in the United States. And it was taught primarily by Leroy Barber, who if y'all don't follow him on the socials, you should. He is amazing. He's this brilliant, motivated exuberant black man and I had never been taught by a person of color before because I live in Whitey Whitesville yeah Um, same here not until I went to college and not uh you know early in college was I taught by a person of color yeah it, it was I was 35 I think and and I had taught in an inner city school which cannot recommend that people just think they can be white and jump into a black school. Doesn't, that's a mess. Um, so we're talking about like, what's racism. And I usually just like knit and listen in class. Well, that was my first class, but after that I learned my lesson and I just listen and knit. Um, 
and they, the, Leroy asks us, you know, what have, what have you experienced for racism? And now that I've been educated, I know that racism is a prejudicial belief plus the backing of systems and structures to keep people with those beliefs in power. And my dumb ass said, well, I have a music education degree and my first job was at this major metropolitan school district in a school that had broken windows and no heat and it was, you know, 93% black and I was flabbergasted that the black teachers didn't like white people. <laughs> I, you know, I know exactly that phase of learning though. You know, I know exactly that moment where as a white person, you're like, but don't we, aren't we all supposed to love each other? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I'm here. Same as you doing the same work. I was not doing the same work. I wasn't even close to doing the same work. So bless their hearts in the most Northern way possible. They just nodded and said, thank you. Mm -hmm. Like in class, I said those words and was treated with graciousness and dignity, even though my dumb ass was talking like an idiot. Like it was... It was so embarrassing much later to re like to remember that moment and to think about how I like just barfed my whiteness all over the whole entire class. And, and to be fair, every, almost everybody in the class was white, but oy. so now when I, if I'm out teaching or speaking about white supremacy in the United States, I always tell people that. Because we can learn to do better. Yeah. Right? It's like that quote, like, you do better. I, I can't tell you what the quote is. And I can't even. When you know better, do better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically, that's it. And, like, to not, like, be ashamed of not knowing things. Because that just means you have so much room to grow. So, praise the lamb, I grew um, <laughs> oh man. So yeah. So my master's thesis was about how Christianity reacted to Islam. And I looked at theologians and church fathers and mothers who had written about Islam as it was coming out in the mid 600s and about how Christianity engaged with Islam, which meant taking a really hard look at the Crusades and mm. taking a look at the papacy and then looking at what happened after World War One, and when the whole Middle East got divided up. So I looked at how World War One impacted the formation of Islamophobia. I looked at Orientalism. Um, and then took a really hard look at what happened after World War II 
between then and um, September 11th, 2001, and then looked at how Islamophobia became really ingrained in American culture and in the culture of the West. And after I had had a good long look, I interacted with some of the writing of Miroslav Wolf, who, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, there's just so much beauty in the writing of Miroslav Wolf. I looked at exclusion and embrace, which uses the cross as a metaphor for embrace. Like we stand up there with our arms wide out and I'm sitting in my living room right now at my table, looking at my computer with my arms right out. And, Mm -hmm. and like, this is how we should love the world with our arms wide open and how exclusion is closing off. It's, when our body language, when our arms cross or when we hunch over or when, you know, we put an arm in front of our face um, and looking at the theological implications of that and then making some suggestions about how we can do better as Christians because Christianity completely paved the way for what happened on September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. And the nationalization of Christianity was just as suspect as Christians were. And my thesis advisor ended up driving me to the airport after graduation. And he said, you know, that was a, you did some really outstanding work there. And there is a brand new fully funded program at St. Andrews in Scotland that I think you should look at. I was like the St. Andrews. Yeah. St. Andrews. And I was just like, I, I was went to immediately doing the math on how you get a family of six to move to Scotland. So mommy can do a doctorate. It just was not going to ever happen. But yeah, but I just felt so much proud I felt so, my son's laughing at me now. I felt so (laughs) proud of myself because I had worked so hard and the work that I had done was seen and valued and Mm -hmm. to a level where they, he suggested I move out of the country and get a PhD. And that warmed the cockles of my, my cold dead heart. And um, (laughs) there was no way that was ever going to happen. Um, I, I talked to my spouse and I said, you are never going to believe what Sam said to me. And, and I recounted the, the conversation and I believe what went into his ears and got stuck in his head was we are moving to Scotland. And so that created some tension in my marriage. Um, sure. Yeah. And as as a compromise, I started looking for seminaries that were close to our area. We live in a fairly red part of Western New York. Um, basically, most of New York, except for the city of New York City and Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse and Albany, everything else is very, very red, like go Trump <laughs> red. Um, as a result... There were not many options for me personally <laughs> that that would have been a really good fit. Um, 
most of the schools in this area and across the state had some really, really firm beliefs about the quote unquote sanctity of marriage. And mm-hmm. I hadn't really sat with that too much at that point in my life. Um, but it grossed me out. And the one place that I found was 45 minutes from my house and it was Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. And it, um, it's a, a bunch of schools that have come together over the years. Um, Crozier Divinity School is where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. attended seminary. Um, I've heard this. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like, you know, that was, that's a pretty good endorsement. Um, Howard Thurman. Right. Um, Walter Rauschenbusch, like all of these people had, were part of the history of that school. And there was no statement of men should only marry women. And so I applied and I got in and then I, um, I was a United Methodist at the time. Um, so I, I went to the district superintendent in Buffalo because that's where I, that's the area where I lived. And, um, I said, I want to go into ministry and this is what I want to do. And he said, Oh, you're so cute. You little lady, you should be maybe a deacon. Probably not. I feel like I was just saying this. I think listeners will have heard me just say this. Is that like, this is what the church does. Here's when women say, I feel called into ministry. They hear, maybe I can get some labor out of this woman. Mm -hmm. And I guess we'll toss her being a deacon. And like, Again, I I think the world of deacons, deacons are great and deacons get shit done. Yeah, they the do. church does not actually think the world of deacons no. and it pisses me the fuck off. It does. We had a deacon at the church that I went to and she is freaking amazing. That woman can do anything. And I have so much respect for the work that she does and she's still doing it. And she has moved from a church context to a different context and she is working it. She is doing the job and getting the things done and making all the parts work together. And it's beautiful. And even like, she she's been the image of what a deacon is because she embodies the the, the ministry and so when i went like i wasn't offended because i it was being suggested that i do what she does sure yeah i was offended because i had a skirt on and he made an assumption Right. And it turns out I deliver a pretty solid sermon and I can run a meeting and I can work with people and I have administration skills. Like 
I have absolutely what it takes to be a pastor, except I am too much of an introvert. Hmm. I would never have guessed. <laughs> I think that's the, um, that is the, I am called to be an elder and also an introvert vibe is people don't understand that we are. I mean, I also want to say that like deacons are pastors too. Yeah, they are. But like you have what it takes, you, you can be focused on the parish yeah. and run the crap out of that job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really take me seriously. And I had come with all of my paperwork completed and I just needed him to sign off to say that I could be in the Methodist program at CRCDS and he wouldn't do it. And I was going to have to go back and have lots of meetings with him and talk some more. And then like, it took me a solid, probably 16 months to get assigned a mentor. I, You started that sentence and I was like, she's going to say like eight weeks. No, uh-uh. 16 months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I was just like, you know what? They're not going to do this for me. I'm just going to just go and be the best at school and then see what they have to say. And they didn't have anything to say. They wouldn't return my phone calls. They wouldn't return my emails. Um, and it got to the point where it was just comical because the people who were running the denomination did not have respect for the God who was calling people into ministry. They couldn't have respected God at all because almost, uh, I would say, 50 to 75% of the Methodists that I went to school with dropped out of consideration to be ordained. Wow. Now, there weren't a ton of us, but that's a huge, that's huge. Because people people didn't feel supported by by their district superintendents. And I eventually started talking to the the person who is a district superintendent in the Rochester area because I was going to school in Rochester. And by that time I had started, I had taken some classes. I had done some blah, 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 blah. And I met with her. I had several interviews with her and she was unknowable. I could not get a read on that person to save my life. And I am pretty good at catching a read on people. And this this person had me just absolutely boggled. Eventually, after probably the third one-on-one interview I had for her with her, um it it came out that she was thinking about placing me in a provisional appointment. And yeah. And she goes, but you know, we've talked about your theology of ministry and we've talked about what you think about God and, and basically people engage, encounter God, however they're going to encounter God. Like there's not, 
there's not a formula, there's not a place, there's not a, a way or a series of things you have to do before you encounter God. Like people, like God wants to know people and people encounter God in the way that God lets them encounter them, right? Like God doesn't care how, God just wants you hmm. to be in relationship. That's what I think anyway. And, and, and the other thing that I said was the greatest commandment is love God, love yourself, love other people. And I can't do that with regularity on a day-to-day basis. So until I have that down and I have my shit together and I can love God, love myself and love other people every day. I can't really worry too much about the other things. Hmm. Like who's doing what? Or if I'm not following the one thing that Jesus said I need to do. If if I can't do that, I don't have any business calling out any logs, any splinters, any little felled branches that people have in their own lives. Right. Thank you for my dog. Do it. It's not for you. Where did you put it? Where did you go? Oh, there it is. It is dark in my living room and I have a black rug and it's a clear, um, one of those clear things that you put underneath your pots. Oh. Hey, baby. So, so I had had these conversations with this district superintendent and, and she goes, you know, you would probably be an okay minister. (laughs) thanks for that endorsement (laughs) she goes except i don't think you love jesus enough oh my god i got very similar feedback from a lay person on a decom one time and i it floored me i was like how do you not hear jesus in every single thing i'm saying right you must not be listening (laughs) right and she just like eviscerated me in the, mm. At the end of this final interview that I, cause I, in my head, I was like, this, I'm done here. Peace out, ma'am. I'm done talking to you. Yeah. And I, it was just, it was so sad that the view that this person had of God and of Jesus was so rigid and codependent. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I didn't want that kind of a relationship with anybody, especially someone I considered to be my parent. Like Hmm. I feel like God is a loving parent and that's who I need God to be in my life is a loving parent for reasons that are too many to discuss today. But how, 
the way she talked about God made me feel like that God was a he and he was just like my adopted dad. And I was not interested in that at all. Period. Finished. I were just not. And it made me so sad for her because this person had spent her life. I mean, not her whole entire life, but like our whole entire life is a trajectory and it gets us to a place. And so all of her life, cumulative life experiences had led her to that moment where she's meeting with someone who she thinks she might want to pastor a church and tells, tells me she doesn't think I believe in Jesus enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why people are leaving the church. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and the thing is that like, you do know how to, um, say the right phrases that signal to others that you understand what it's like to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, like you, you know how to evangelical speak. And I find so often people who are not raised evangelical, but who want to see that their pastors love Jesus need you to say the words in that way. And so I, I, I just don't understand <laughs> how somebody can look at you, look at the skills you have and the abilities you have look at the work that you do and like what drives you and say i don't think you love jesus and it i and also from this process we have heard that they were not connecting with you in the first place that if you wanted to be involved in this in any way shape and form you had to fight for it and go do it on your own and the ordination process kind of across the umc is a is a self-started process which they do not make very clear no but at the same time if you have to fight for everything in the first place you want to be here you're not just doing this for self self-aggrandizement absolutely not I yeah it puzzles me when people say things like that right and like it was so exhausting to just even sit there and talk to her Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I I had to be so careful about not sounding too progressive or too conservative or making sure that I you know talked about believing creeds and how, the structure of worship. And we had, I mean, we talked about so many things and, and I had talked about, um, I had talked about my children and I had talked about my going to Lebanon twice and spending more than a month and a half in a refugee community and what it looked like. And, and the preparation for that and how I've been able to use that experience to tell a story about a really misunderstood group of people. Mm-hmm. To, I, I can go, I've spoken to so many churches about what my experience was in the Muslim community in Lebanon. Because when you, the people hear that, they think, oh, Oh, you hung out with terrorists. Like, no, no, I didn't. 
I hung out with people who suffer because of terrorists. And I hung out with people whose apartments were blown up by terrorists. And and people whose entire families were murdered in the street by terrorists. Like, no, we need to... But she she just couldn't she couldn't do it, and for some reason, she she offered me a job, and um, she offered me this job right after my my spouse and I decided to get divorced. Oof, and I wasn't really ready to. Like we hadn't even gotten separated yet. And, and I wasn't ready to tell her, Oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm getting divorced. I know you're really going to love that. Um, so, so I didn't. And we sat down at the Highland diner and she, she bought me some toast and coffee and explained the offer of the job. And the offer was, I would have to restart my entire process from the beginning Oh my God. <laughs> and I, I was two out of three years finished with seminary. Um, I had been planning to only have one semester left, but I almost died a couple months before that and had a hole in my stomach. Lots of fun. Um, so I, I had a hard time um, reading after the extended amount of time I was under sedation. So I needed to take the whole entire 2018, 19 school year. So anyway, she offered me this job and I had to restart my candidacy and it was three quarter time and there was a parsonage and it was out in, in the Finger Lakes area. It was going to be a little bit of a drive back to school to finish classes. And she wanted to know if, my kids were going to be in the front pew every Sunday. She said, I told the congregation that you have four young sons and they are so excited to have kids in the church. Red flag, number one. Yeah. Um, they're so excited to have your kids in the front pew every Sunday. And in my head, I was like, ma'am, I reserve the parent card for one occasion and that is health and safety issues and yeah. my children sitting in the front pew of a church is not the hill I am even going to walk up let alone die on right so she she's talking all about the church is so excited about your kids and their kids and the kids and the kids and I was like aren't they excited about me Like, what have you told them about me that they are only excited that I have bread? Right. That That's not a place I want to be. And she said, you have 24 hours to decide. And um, so I'll, I'll hear from you later this evening. And I mean, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. And she's like, call me later tonight. And I was like, I have 24 hours. 
I'm not calling you tonight. Like, right. I need to sleep on it. That's why you gave me 24 hours. Actually, I don't know why she gave me 24 hours. She did not want me to sleep on it. She wanted me to be like, oh, yes, please hire me immediately. What? There's no health insurance? That's okay. I only have four children. Right. (laughs) I called, I called my advisor who is the head of the Methodist program. And I was like, dude, I have to say no to this, don't I? And he was like, I can't, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And I was like, I'm telling you, I have to say no to this because this is bonkers. This is absolutely bonkers. So I called her the next day. It was like hour 23 and 30 minutes. And I called and I said, um, I really appreciate the time that we've spent getting to know each other. And um, I am feeling very uncomfortable about how focused we are on my children in this conversation. And my children are not for hire. And as such, I have to respectfully decline this position. And she had not answered the phone when I called. So you had to leave this on a voicemail? <laughs> I left it on a voicemail, which was okay, because I didn't really want to hear what she had to say about it, because I knew it wasn't going to be kind or gracious or Christ-like or even a tiny bit nice, because that's not who she was as a person. And she called me back about a half hour later. And I did not answer the phone because I didn't want to hear, didn't want to hear. Yeah. And I think I still have the phone that has that voicemail message on it. I have never heard anyone in positions of authority in ministry say the things that woman said on that voicemail. Wow. And it, it was, it was just beyond. It was, it was so inappropriate and so angry. And she took it so personally. Like I had said, F off. I effing hate you. You bitch. That's not what I said. I said I have to respectfully decline because my children are not for sale, which is not a pleasant turn of phrase, I will admit. But her response was just beyond. And I was glad that she was not going to be my boss. Right. Because I have – I didn't want to – I don't even know how – you could even begin to work with a person like that. And I'm sure there are plenty of people across the upper New York, whatever, that found her to be remarkable and lovely. And that was not my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's And that's, that's across, I think, the Methodist connection too. Not that people are two-faced, but that like everybody is the person they need to be in any given situation. Um, and sometimes people show their ass and other people never have that experience of that person. Yeah. And I, I've had 
moments where somebody has said, has reported that somebody else has been really, really deeply unkind to them. And I'm like, I have never seen this person do that thing. But also, I didn't encounter them in the way that you encountered them. Uh, I, I think that's a, we all find, maybe not we all, but I find a lot of cognitive dissonance around situations like that. Yeah. Yeah. But still, like, that was your experience. It was very unpleasant. It was very unpleasant. And it was such a relief. So, and this was in 2018, and I was offered the position to start July 1st, 2018. And um, yeah, I didn't take it. And I can't, I still was a member at a United Methodist Church. I had just done my supervised ministry at Asbury First United Methodist Church, where I met Ian. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for that because now I have Ian in my life and he's just wonderful. And it's just, it's good to have a shared experience with someone who's brilliant. Yeah. So I, I stayed in school and finished my degree. Um, I was president of the student body and we were, we did a presidential search and we were, going to be leaving our very fancy gothic building to find another place to do school and I was involved in that and I I loved I loved seminary so much hmm. um it it was like it was one of the first times in my life where I felt like I belonged which is a whole other deep dive for a whole other conversation. But I, I was good at seminary and I loved researching and writing and parsing vocabulary. And I cried regularly while studying Greek, not from the beauty of it, but just from the sheer frustration of dead language. And sure. Yeah. It was all, it was just, it was amazing. And as I finished my last year, we were approaching in the Methodist church, the general conference of 2019. Yep. (laughs) To be continued. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice. Find us across the social internet at WTHIAP and visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch playlist and more. A special thanks to our Patreon subscribers, Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, Annalise, and Ian. Thank you for your money. It helps make the show happen. Thanks for listening, everybody out there. And remember, friends, when you know better, do better. <laughs> <laughs>